You're listening to Race Capital, where we interrogate racial narratives in the fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. And this week, you've got all three of us, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, Kalia Harris, and Naomi Isaac. Welcome to Race Capital this week, beyond the protest, how we've seen traditionally and already people are filtering the work of Black liberation into what they feel is appropriate into nonprofit spaces. And just a little background about Richmond right now, we have over a thousand nonprofits. And when we're looking at focused on civil rights, Black nonprofits, we have about 20 and that are registered that you can find asking about how many of those run is even less than that. And that's when we start really looking at the history of nonprofits and how they came about and how they were used as tools from the public officials and addressing what they wanted to address with poverty. As we've always heard from particularly white officials only looking at a white working class is that if we're attacking poverty and jobs, then we can attack the entire problem that's going on. And nonprofits were used as a tool to create jobs and to create a space to say that they are welcoming in those that were suffering poverty. And a lot of nonprofit scholars refer to this as meds and eds. So medical institutions and educational institutions, which are also nonprofits, right? Hospitals and, and higher learning um, institutions. We're on zoom right now. I'm looking at Kalia, my higher learning expert over here, just nodding her head as we're talking about these nonprofits and these are anchor nonprofit institutions to be able to, while also saying that you're addressing poverty and looking over generations. Now we realize of course, because there was no intersectionality when looking and is if that foundation isn't there, of, are you really working yourself out of a job? We've seen these institutions just get larger and larger and take up space as well as reinforce and actually perpetuate racism to where we're seeing these nonprofits, even though they are offering jobs, there is a split. There is a split between um, what we call skilled jobs and knowledge jobs in these nonprofit worlds and medical worlds, educational worlds, right? Doctors versus med techs. And that's still the same split from the upper class and the middle class that we have of no upward mobility. We see that same type of structure in nonprofits and the way that they're set up even in their labor structure. And so when we see that and understand how that's taken up so much space here in Richmond, Virginia, the fallen capital of the Confederacy. It makes sense that we are drowning in nonprofits. We're saying that we've been working on poverty, but yet we are not seeing any real benefits of all this so-called work that the nonprofit sector has been doing. Yes. I think people, like someone coming from the nonprofit world who like just had to come to terms with the fact that they aren't here to aid the revolution, we know that liberation requires like actively working against the U.S. empire. And like so often these people are so deeply invested in the very same systems, like you said, Chelsea, that are oppressing us. Um, nonprofits themselves are a co-optation 
by capitalists of the community programs, the very same community programs that were started by the Black Panther Party, started by Black rights and uh, activists, started by poor communities to take care of themselves. We have philanthropists, corporate philanthropists coming in and really co-opting these spaces and this kind of organization. We were talking about it yesterday with one of our comrades about relational organizing. And somebody was like, what is that? I've never even heard of that label. And we had to just discuss the ways that, you know, they take in a cultural practice, a cultural form of resistance um, from Black people, from Black and Indigenous people of color. And they've institutionalized it and they train people in things like political science to go out into the world and start nonprofits and, and and save the world you know basically they aren't they what nonprofits see with the people who fund these organizations they aren't in opposition to government they just think that the people in government aren't kind enough and they think that with kindness they can solve the issues of U.S. empire. They never look at it systemically. They're still looking at it from an individual lens, which makes them, like I said, um, or which just makes them in opposition to, to Black resistance a lot of the time. It makes them a white savior is what it makes them. It's that entire complex uh, built into an institution, which we call nonprofits. And to go into that a little bit more, we Looking at the structure of the nonprofits again, we know that most of the time, especially historically, they're all white male boards and the labor of the nonprofit was done by a woman support role. And that's a low wage role. Right. So, again, it's this white savior role that even um, we've seen white women talk about and want to have more voices and representation on the but it. It just really models the exact type of uh, institution of oppression that we have right here in America. Yeah, so we have language for this stuff. White savior complex that Chelsea just said, the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Like this is an industry, whether it's colleges and universities, which are supposed to be not for profit, but are becoming increasingly privatized, uh, whether it's social justice organizations that are institutions. I think that's like such an important distinction to make because when you come from an all white male board or a board that is mostly white women, which is, you know, the service learning service industry that is mainly white women, if you look nationally, the ways that these boards are made up, the practices that they perpetuate, the behaviors that they say are okay versus not okay, and those dynamics that they create with the community, those are functions of whatever culture has been created by those boards. And so now we see nonprofits, a lot of them with more diverse representation. You may see a black executive director, you might see things look different, but you really have to look at the founding of these organizations, the mission statement, the vision, the story. What are the practices that they're unearthing? What are the things that they're continuing to perpetuate? We have to interrogate that as we're looking at the nonprofit industrial complex, because the question always has to be, who are their funders? What does sustainability of that org look like? And what are they invested in to continue the existence of their very organization, not the eradication of the issue? That is the critical perspective. And that's that analysis of really looking at this work, especially as, as you're looking to engage in it as a volunteer or community member. 
Yeah, and I've, I've worked for nonprofits where you go on the website, you know, you look up how much money they make, you know, after you've, like, busted your, like, tail outside in the heat working for these people. Let me see where all this money is going towards. And you look it up, and like you said, Kalia, they're invested in sustaining their organization. And so you'll look and see that thousands of dollars are going to board members, thousands of dollars are going to awareness, to awareness, you know? And so it's like, what is the effectiveness of a lot of these nonprofit uh, organizations that we are so heavily reliant on? How much are they actually aiding in resistance to systems that again, are holding us down and putting our people in chains? Yeah, and I say, and I think of this all with the nuance of the fact that direct needs still need to be met, right? Kids need book bags, laptops, food. And so in the assessment of what's getting done and what's not getting done, knowing that things have to function at the same time, which complicates it. So that it's not just black and white of yes and no, but we got a whole problem here <laughs> where we still need to feed people and get them resources but we're investing in continuing another institution of white supremacy that is not working itself out of a job, but further investing. And to speak what to speak on the micro versus macro approach, what you just kind of discussed a little bit there, Kalia, of the direct care of people need things right now. That's the direct care. And the macro approach is how they're funded, maintained, and organized around in a community. And there's a meso in there as well that really mixes that together. But that complication is more than just how do we work together at the same time, y'all. It's not that, oh, it's too much to do. It's also complex and woven into the past and how they champion, and by they, I mean the public officials, elected officials um, that are using public dollars, how they're championing nonprofits, right? Because now that means that they are championing them, keeping them sustained, and they don't have to now as public officials use their authority to reinvest and change the system so that that community that's being quote unquote served by the nonprofit can now sustain itself, right? Because as Kalia just said, they're not in the business of working themselves out of a job. They just want to keep funding themselves. And now the public official doesn't have to change the systemic of just reinvesting in that community for themselves to build and take care of themselves. So it's a cycle. And that's why it's more than just, oh, we can't do too much. It's that the public officials, if they champion certain initiatives, aka labor initiatives, aka civil rights issues initiatives through nonprofits, then they actually are able to skirt out of it with legislation, ordinance, and their budgetary decisions. And that's the tension, right? Of when we're over a hundred days into a revolution, there's a tension between protest and institution, whether it's city council, whether it's state level, the national level, or on our local level with power, resources. When we say we want change, we go and look at who's going to be funded. What, 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 what does funding the change actually look like, right? <laughs> like, and that's where this stuff comes in. Because we have, we're going to have people scrapping for dollars for their organization, but how are we actually going to get meet, needs met and like systemic change created? Um, without disrupting this capitalist root of nonprofits. And so that's kind of where I'm at with like, 
because you know you get the dms that are like where should i donate where do i go who's doing the work um and when you know that you're navigating through a bunch of nonprofit spaces it's like well dang are we recreating the capitalist wheel and what does it look like to disrupt that to create a new system of being where mutual aid doesn't have to be um nonprofits how do we actually do that outside of systems of white supremacy um so i'm really sitting with that that's been hard for me too kalia because as someone that has a somewhat like large following locally when the uprising started i had a lot of dms that were saying who should who should i donate to right asking me these questions and there are folks now accusing me of redirecting funds that people were saying were supposed to go to org and i was being very honest with people in my dms that need to really redistribute this money to orgs that you may not have ever heard of or black led orgs, right? Like I know a lot of folks may know me for one particular org of organizing like Richmond for all, but during these uprisings, I've been also trying to really focus on black led orgs, whether that's ones I'm connected to or other folks. And because it's these complications in my mind of like, how am I wrestling with this, especially in this moment of when I, I know who needs it now, who's in the streets and needs it now, and who's really building on, on this idea of working themselves out versus only building themselves up. I've really been reflecting on this, this paper, basically written about a 1983 Fordham in Grenada, about Grenada and Jamaica, um, interviewing this Jamaican mechanic named Bundy. And he talks about this question that we're all struggling with, just how do you get change with all these different complexities? And he says that it's like just very simple because we don't need stages when we have people. We don't need bureaucracy. We don't even need money, like he says, to abolish money. All we need is people. And it it takes us back to, again, cultural aspects of our resistance where our people have always come together to free ourselves. And so when, when it comes to like, just negotiating with some of these nonprofits about where they were putting their money during this time and kind of having to break it down to them that like investing in these very institutionalized assets, like flyers, or again, just investing in political awareness when, when that political awareness is already being gained in the street and people are, you know, have real material needs and you have thousands of dollars that you're building on their names and on, on the trauma that they're facing in the streets, you know, just talking about putting that money directly back into the hands of the people that need it most. There's so much antagonization (laughs) against that thought, but it's like, why do we need to funnel that money? Y'all are talking about trickle down economics that we want to funnel that money through the nonprofit industrial complex, through these electoral representatives and have it, what, wait four years, wait 12 months. Like some of us don't have that time. And so when nonprofits have money that they sit on, and they, they, again, give us that same bureaucratic friction that we, we face with the state when, we're, when we need financial aid. It's such BS. It's like, who are you here to serve? You're not here to work yourself out of a job. You are here to get proximity to power. And that's why I'm like, mutual aid is everything, right? When folks ask me where to give money, my thing is, you don't have to give it to someone that's doing work. Like, we're recording this episode on Labor Day. So it's... It's important for us to talk about as we navigate as Black non gender non-conforming folks, as Black women through these spaces that you don't have to give to the work. 
you can also just give to black people. Um, and that is just as legitimate as giving to people that are quote unquote doing whatever you're considering legitimate work. Um, because I think that that's what it comes down to is like, what's legitimate? What's not? What's worthy of my money? What's not? And so the first thing is, where do black people at? That's what you should be giving, you know, your money, your resources, and not just money, but like when I'm saying resources, that also means your time, your attention, um, in terms of media, your consumption, right? Where are you giving that attention? And then it's also about why, what is this notion of giving? Is it because, um, is it because you're consuming something or is it through the spirit of mutual aid? Because that is the resistance factor, um, us just like sitting back and cash apping while it's good is not, it's not enough. We also have to be investing in our communities, talking to black people, figuring out where is it that they go? Where are the resources in my community being redistributed and how do I become a part of that? And if it's not happening, how do we make that happen? So this is also a challenge to folks that are listening. It's not just on us, right? Uh, to to figure out where money is going. Frankly, I don't have a finance degree, and I failed all my math classes in college. <laughs> me. Funds, you know? Um, and so I think, like, folks should really think about their participation in community and not just about relying on the labor of Black gender nonconforming people, Black women. It's not just on us. We all have to come together and start to do this work. Um, and so that also means uh, re releasing our dependence on nonprofits. We've become real comfortable with, okay, they do this and, oh, they're good for that. And, okay, well, you know, do that. But that is not getting us free. We have to, re like, really get at the, the root of that. Um, and so I'm not saying that, like, to be on a, a, a like, preaching thing, I journal about this because I struggle with it. Like, it's really difficult. I work for a nonprofit. Like, their existence funds um, really Black people, right? Colleges funnel us there. Um, our society funnels us into that work if we feel that we want to change something. So while we're also in there, we got to start breaking and abolishing all of these things so that we can get resources out. Because the reality is people don't have what they need. And I think like relinquishing dependence on on um, nonprofits helps with reparations because again when we talk about giving, you're not just giving because we're doing a cause or giving because we're good black people who are working and doing labor. You're giving because you are receiving privilege in life. Again, the ability to not worry about if you will get shot at a traffic stop. The ability, again, to have all this life privilege and opportunity because Black people died and were, were killed and were robbed and stolen of things that we were owed so that you could live that life. So you de deserve to give us money. That is the concept of reparations. And it shouldn't be whether or not, you know, I'm doing a podcast or if I'm in school or if I'm in an organization, if I'm busting windows, if I'm on the street. Black people deserve your money because you have privilege and that's like you know you can't as as we start to divest from nonprofits, it will be more on the responsibility of all of us to pay reparations directly and again offer resources directly and champion for social justice issues directly investing our own time and money and i think that can be scary for people they like to just write a check or just sign up for a subscription and 
take my $3 and that's it. But, you know, you have to become more invested in anti-colonial um, systems of anti-oppression. I want to go back to something that Kalia also said, and, and you brought up to Naomi and the idea of just give black people money and how hard that concept actually is to people trusting black people with money is part of our rooted psychology against criminalizing black people. Shout out to Dr. Yutzi and why, why we can't be trusted with money, right? Whether that's even literally our food stamps, our, our way to feed ourselves is regulated, right? And now this is the same way that we've seen in nonprofits, even recently and locally of having to negotiate and trying to have resources filtered to the streets, this trickle down idea and having to, to uh, present it and write a proposal. And then also myself even be targeted for misusing money when all I've been trying to do is redistribute money. And it all comes back down to, we don't trust black people with money and to what Naomi is saying of you have to give more, you have to do more is because you have to actually erase that mindset. You have to, you have to see it, you have to live it and signing up for something or just writing a check isn't going to do that. And also just to remind everyone as we are getting even more ingrained with the idea that nonprofit is here to stay. It is the answer rather than disinvesting and and relinquishing our dependence. And 2015, the nonprofit sector represented about 5.4% 5.4% of the gross domestic product and contributed 985.4 billion to the U.S. economy. And in 2017, it accounted for 10.2% of the national workforce, y'all. So we are growing. The nonprofit industrial complex is growing. We have to change what we are doing. And I, as a mom, I also want to encourage people as we are shifting or advancing our narrative to think about how we're teaching our youth and why you have to do more than just sign a petition. You need to get out and talk and listen and read so that everyone around you, including your kids or young people are also hearing that and watching you learn and relearn because that's what they're going to have to do as well. Really it's doing an assessment of Richmond, acknowledging that a lot of these local efforts, you know, we got black people everywhere, first of all, but a lot of the power still lies in uh, white culture on boards. And so that is concerning. I mean, it's something I'm still really navigating is just making sense of how I navigate the white culture in these spaces. Because I spent a lot of time up in DC with Black Youth Project, shout out to y'all. But I actually saw what Black leadership looks like an organization space where there is transparency, where there's conflict mediation, where Black people are trusted with money. And it's beautiful. I think I've struggled to find here, but there are organizations that are Black-led here, that are doing work, that are invested in street work and advancing community demands and are also invested in work in the community. And so I think it, it also takes us doing a bit of research, a bit of relational organizing, as Naomi named earlier, and really starting to build relationships with folks in community and build trust so that you can find out where should my effort and time go. 
where can we grow and build infrastructure from what does exist to start to unearth some of this stuff? And some of that, as a organizer, some of, some of that pipelining, we also have to see which orgs and community spaces are not invested in the abolition of racial capitalism that are not invested in getting rid of the police in our community. So it's really about doing an assessment and then figuring out, again, I'm going to keep saying it, where are the Black people leading? Where are they allowing Black people to speak and be? And I love that point about trusting Black leadership, because I think so often people, when they find that they want to get into progressive movement space, they just trust white communists, white socialist spaces, um, and like I said, I've been reflecting on this paper by Fundy because uh, he, he talks a lot about how, like, we have always been manifesting more democratic, more equitable formations than, than the white socialists. That we've always been manifesting systems that will save our people. We've been thinking about this for far longer than a lot of these other groups have been thinking. A lot of non-Black people have been thinking about them. So we can trust our leadership. We can trust that Black women, Black gender non-conforming people, Black trans women, that they know <laughs> the methods and the framework necessary to get to liberation, that they're going to know more than someone who had to go learn about it in school, to someone who's so disconnected from the struggle. You know, like, we can't just trust people because they say they're to the left. To the left of what, if you're not interested in taking a stand, like a hard stance against white supremacy, then what are you to the left of? And I think that's the question that a lot of these white nonprofits have to ask themselves and what Black people in those groups need to ask themselves. And then look around you and realize that there are Black people who are invested in anti-colonialism, who are invested in fighting against white supremacy, and then in invest yourself into those groups because <laughs> having these, these organizations gain power and gain our loyalty, take our money, take our labor, and then offer nothing in return, that's not it. And I'm, I'm frankly tired of it. You're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. First off, let me start by saying I love myself and I love my community. Now I've been asked, what do I think about these nonprofit organizations that are supposed to better my community or help myself? I say that nonprofit organizations in the whole, for the most part, are worthless to my community. Now there are people that do great work, there are nonprofits that do great things, but as a whole, in the majority, are worthless. It's subdiffused. The bottom line is simply this. If we are still having the same social problems year after year after year, then what are nonprofit programs really doing? And with any new nonprofit or any new organization that's built, what are they going to do differently? They are already bound by restraints for the simple fact that they are nonprofit. Simple fact that there are laws that govern them, there are finances that govern them, there is a hierarchy that governs them, a board that governs them, and grants that govern them, philanthropic organizations that govern them, and somebody else's corporate dollars or sponsorship that governs them. So they have to answer to a whole bunch of people. At the end of the day, we have to look at our condition and say, is our condition better, is it worse, or is it the same? And if the answer is that it's worse or it's the same, the nonprofit organizations are doing nothing to better our community. And any organization 
that says that it's going to so-called better our community should be held to the standard of producing real results, not testimonies, not just a little bit of results that they can get another grant for the next year, but tangible and real results that the general population can see. If the general population doesn't see a change, doesn't see growth, can't point to that organization and say they're the ones that solved this problem, then the organization is not doing its job. Effectively, anyway. So we got to look at it from a realistic standpoint. The proof is in the pudding. If these individuals who say that they're going to change our community are not producing results, then hold them accountable. Let's not argue about what they do, what they're not doing, what they're going to do. Because leave it to me, I'll tell you that they're doing exactly what they're designed to do. Be subdiffuge. You incorporate as a nonprofit and you answer to individuals who you would normally answer to once you incorporate. All this is doing in our community is creating an issue. Because people who are coming up with great ideas to make social change are being forced into a box of what's called nonprofit. That's by design. It's by design to control every person's moves who have good intentions. Because you're stuck in a box of what's called nonprofit and can lose your 501c3 status or whatever that status is. So for those of us who are about real change, who want to see real results, who want to see babies stop dying, who want to see people stop being on the streets struggling, who want to see real systematic change, get with real folks that's doing real work. Period. Because ain't no organization going to produce the results that real passionate people will produce. I'm one of those people. So if we're going to get like anybody, let's get like those people. Thank you to the YouTuber Visionary Lion. Now back to Raise Capital. And exactly what you were saying of, I'm also really interested in local nonprofits right now of how they are erasing the policing in their mind, as we've talked about in past episodes. And if they're not, especially if they're not outwardly against policing within their efforts, what are you doing within your boards? Everything right now we know is rooted in white supremacy in Richmond. So everyone should be having these conversations. And for so long, I have called myself a trust builder. I've done the equity dialogues and facilitations and specifically in nonprofit spaces with nonprofit boards and it's exhausting and it is it feels like I'm being exploited and it feels like it is for a moment and for a check and for a check off and as Kalia is saying if you aren't following the black people in that moment like Naomi is saying if you aren't reading and learning that black people have been thinking about this for so much longer and able to recognize it in the moment, then it's easy to fall in line with what we know and what our psychology has been conditioned to follow. And we have to continue to just keep going back to this of what are we doing in our own spaces and our own minds. And even if you can't sign up, if you're not a member, you're, that, that doesn't mean you're not doing the work of something, right? We have to also... Um, erase that and release that from our minds of you are still learning and supporting black leadership. And that is what's important. Right. And a lot of people lately have been asking me of 
if they are not in this progressive space that organizations like Richmond for All have made, where else can they go? And in my mind, I'm like, well, the work doesn't stop. It, it, this, so what do you mean, where do you go? You follow where the work is, and that is where Black people are leading. And it's hard to articulate that because a lot of folks just, when, even when you say that, they don't know what that means. So it, as a lot of non-Black people are listening and trying to navigate in this moment, I don't know what to tell y'all except for just honestly listen to the words that we're saying and figure out why you aren't hearing it because I don't know how many different ways we can say it. And I almost feel like the language should be adjusted to from leadership to really facilitation because I think that really is the work that so many Black people have been doing out here on the streets, whereas white people are trying to leave. <laughs> like, they really are trying to leave, whereas Black people have been out here in the street trying to, to start conversations, the very important conversations that we need to curate the history that we need to understand the direction that we need to go into. And that is the only thing that has been happening. You know, people are really just trying to secure Black liberation, whereas I think a lot of white groups are trying to secure or legitimize their claim to a progressive label. You know, it, it just, one is very opportunistic and the other is very genuine and rooted again in community conversation versus just capitalizing off the community. Yeah, and I just want to speak again to the value of non-white spaces, non-white organizing spaces, non-white, even if you got non-white nonprofits, right? Um, I think it's really important for us to struggle through our spectrum of beliefs and perspectives together. And sometimes that has to exist outside of nonprofits. That has to exist in the streets, in community dialogue, struggling through some of this stuff together. Because one thing I think of, like, when you're looking for an organization or a community space to be in is, like, the isolation that comes from not having shared space, right? Especially in these unprecedented, very troubling pandemic COVID-19 times, it can be very disorienting to not know where to go, who to trust, who to listen to. But I think that like, it always comes back to me of like this tool of relational organizing. And that's not something that just, you know, people that you see with megaphones do. It should be all of us are trying to build relationship with folks and find those connections. Find out what work is happening right around you and support that. And like Chelsea and Naomi are both saying, support what is speaking true to your values. If something's not speaking, go and seek out uh, those spaces that are. And I really just want us to abolish, abolish, abolish the idea of organizations being the only container for the revolution. The revolution is happening in our minds. The revolution is happening in our houses as we come home. It's, you know, it's happening in workspaces. It's happening everywhere. What I was speaking to, I, what I thought that you were speaking to, Kalia, uh, that I was kind of speaking to about facilitation is like, like, I know Kalia is an introvert. I'm an introvert. So going out into the street and like having a megaphone is probably like the last thing that I would ever want to do. But going out into the street and watching and hearing people, again, propagate cissexism, ableism, hearing people willingly give power to elected officials coming out into the street that puts you into a position, again, to defend Black resistance and Black liberation that then puts you in opposition with white orgs that you represent. Because, like, as a Black person, I'm not going to watch people cause harm to, to a, a movement that's in my best interest. 
but as like an organizer for their space they want you to only act again narrow-mindedly with their single issue and if it doesn't like align with electoral politics they don't want you to talk about it and like that can't be the way that we move forward because if we're willing to to operate under the assumption that a diversity of tactics will get us free i feel like other people should be willing to operate under that notion as well and just really quickly to even speak about the introvert extrovert thing i do qualify myself as an extrovert and i will tell you very honestly that something i've noticed in myself at least in the past like 18 months is that my affect is different when i'm not in a public scene where i have to be the extrovert now i'm extra in inside i like quiet time silence like my whole time of being not with people is different now of how my spirit and energy is so how I now have to show up in spaces just to feel like I'm not being harmed and allowing that anymore because I've just, I used to allow it for years, right? I functioned in these systems and navigated for years. And since I've abolished that in my mind to do that now, I just realize even my whole spirit is differently and how I have to take care of myself. So just being out in public, right. And, and putting out there is now even affecting ourselves and Naomi saying you know I'm not going to let it hurt the movement and to me what I've really seen is this movement is like is it hurting people like am I literally hearing that something is happening and harming individuals that I know well then that's not good for the movement period absolutely and I just I don't know I think a lot of people are used to being bystanders but I I think people who've been oppressed for a long time know that like we just don't have that benefit of being the bystander because we can seriously, we have seriously watched people take on serious violence in the, in the street. And like, you, like you're saying, if, that, if anyone takes on more violence immediately, that's a hindrance to the movement. And that means that we can't be silent. And that's what we were, are requesting from everyone else, you know, especially from people with privilege, especially from white people, to take the blunt force, to take the, the move that puts you in opposition, that make, means that you assume more risk, but saves more Black people prevents violence from from um, coming our way and not enough people are willing to do that yeah and we've all been reading this book um burn down the american plantation and there's this whole section in the book about conflict resolution and it's been something that i've been thinking about a lot about conflict resolution and then the role of the white of white gaze in us as black people solving our conflicts because we have like social media, we have like the way that the pandemic has kind of created our communication styles. I think there's a lot of aspects to take in. And so I just, I'm curious to learn more about conflict resolution and how we can like work through that as Black people, because I know that there's some sort of foundation laid down. I haven't done the readings on it yet, but that's something I've really been thinking through because it's one thing to deal with white harm we have to address that. We have to talk about what accountability truly looks like. But then there's also like, how do we deal with, if we just have a difference in perspective, if we have a difference in tactics that we want to take or risks that we as Black people are comfortable taking, what does that look like for us to work through and struggle through our analysis and approach together? And that's something that I just want more of 
in the revolution. Like white people are going to do what they do and we'll have to deal with that harm. And, you know, of course there's a whole processes that we'll have to, you could talk a whole episode about for white harm, but I just would love for us to talk at some point as community members in our own pods and spaces about what does it look like to have open communication, conflict resolution outside of the white gaze as we're moving through like to abolition because I think our relationships are what are going to get us there and it's not going to be us as individuals in silos just continuing about but we're going to have to break out and start to talk to one another. Yeah I really love that because something that I was really looking at when I was moving out of clinical direct work in 2017 were these um, circle practices and when there are conflicts or things happen and we harm one another that we we really do work through it in a circle practice and no one is thrown away and we face our harms we confront them we we move through that together and the idea of circle is really lost and minimized and we don't know what to do with it because we ourselves are still abolishing uh, the idea of criminalizing each other or just being a bystander and letting them be criminalized while we move on, right? Because understanding not intervening allows an organic um, consumption of us into this establishment where they where they, they just eat us alive. So what, what you're talking about brings up a lot of what brought me to the dialogue and facilitation space in 2017, which kind of brought me to a public eye of having these very open conversations. Um, but outside of social media, I was sitting in circle a lot with people and, and a lot trying to hold space to not allow anyone to be thrown away. But like you said, we have a lot of work to do. I even to understand that, right. And, and learn that. I think we all have learning to do. I think it really does start with abolishing that hierarchical, just that hierarchical representative model when it comes to organizing. And again, like having legitimacy and illegitimacy to organizing spaces when all when it comes to black people, again, asterisks, because we are all trying, we all have the same goal in mind. And so we have to, again, like you're saying, Chelsea, just not treat each other like the justice system does, not be punitive, not treat people as if they're disposable and realizing that we have all been conditioned under the same white, like we've all been conditioned in a white society, which makes us all susceptible to like white interests, to colonial interests, to capitalist interests, and we all have to go through that process of unlearning. So being forgiving to people that look like us and have lived life like us is like most important and understanding that none of us are above or below someone just because like we've we've come to a black liberationist mindset sooner than someone else might have. Right. And like I've been thinking about this. This actually came to me as soon as I woke up today. Because my favorite definition of social justice is that it's a process and a goal. Because I feel like I, I'm an emerging abolitionist. Like, I'm still learning it. I'm learning what my ancestors have left, those, those crumbs that they left behind that I'm starting to collect, right? And so I've started to kind of think about, like, well, is abolition a process and a goal? And, like, what are the, the pillars of that? And so if it is a process, like, what does that process look like for us as Black people? And how do we process, right, together? And so, yeah, I've also been thinking since we left the the Richmond so-called Justice Center about, like, disposability of Black people. But, like, how do we not throw each other away? And so 
it's just been really sitting with me as I think about abolition. Like, how do we not throw each other away during a revolutionary time? And how do we see revolutionary love, revolutionary forgiveness um, as practices that will get us free? Because I feel like to me, that's just been what I've, I've been trying to like challenge myself too, right? Like, how can I not throw people away in my head? How can we move towards a process that actually just brings us all back together? Because what are we creating? What is the world that we actually want if abolition happens and we actually don't have capitalism based on our labors, Black people? What are we creating? And so I think that that's also going to really mean that we have to process what abolition is as practice. And I, I think forgiveness and conflict resolution is going to be so big. And it's such a big part of it for us to work through. Yes, I feel all that, first off. And, and I think for me, it's really been a process of understanding that not only did our African ancestors want us to be free, but they, that's, they wanted more than that. You know, they didn't base their life around bondage. They, they didn't come into this world just thinking about ways to escape bondage. They had other goals and manifestations in mind and getting back in, to wondering and like just like accepting and internalizing that broader vision that they had for the world for us and that it hasn't always been uh, to just fight slavery. And so I think that really, yeah, like just, just thinking about post-slavery like has really been on my mind as well and how, how we, especially when it's like, we have so many of these officers that are black that look like us serving on the force. Where is the space for them? Oh, where is the space for them when we abolish the police and how do we rehabilitate them from the harm that they've caused our communities and themselves, honestly? That is what hit me, Naomi, was that when we were at the justice center and we saw that all the deputies were black and you had said like, while we were out there, you were just like, you know, we'll have to rehabilitate them too. And I've just been thinking about that so heavy as I think about like, who is disposable? No one's disposable. Okay, well then how do we move past life post-slavery if we're acknowledging that slavery still exists today? If that's how we're acknowledging our reality, how are we going to rehabilitate all Black people? Because like, we have no blueprint because reconstruction never got to happen so we don't really know what happens after slavery even when it's like we don't really know and it's it, that's the frightening part that there aren't a lot of footprints because it was it never came to fruition <laughs> yeah and like and what you're saying is nonprofits is not that blueprint naomi is that what you're saying nonprofits is not that blueprint i don't know what happens after slavery but it's not gonna be happening in the walls of a nonprofit. i get that much okay y'all well we don't have any guests today so I would love to open up for us to talk about what is our privilege and how do we use it to dismantle the myth of white supremacy? So my privilege is um, I live in the U.S. empire, which is completely fueled by the genocide of the earth and genocide of black and indigenous people all across this globe. I sustain my way of life, uh, on occupied Powhatan land, the stolen land of the Pamunkey tribe. I can uh, come off as cis-presenting. I am legally documented by the state. I come from a middle-class family. Um, I have a high school education. I don't have a degree, but I do have some college education. I have a reputation as a credible organizer. 
um, because I've been legitimized through my own connections to the nonprofit industrial complex of a white partner who has access to generational wealth, which means I have access to their generational wealth. And so really understanding and reflecting these uh, privileges and this power, right? Um, and understanding that systems dismantle European supremacy and the myth of white supremacy, not individual actions. So working to empower black communities and other communities of color who are working towards uh, alternatives to imperial imperialist models of social organization and, and using the resources and labor and time and status that I do have to offer reparations to those who have not... Um, who have been financially disinvested and disempowered. Um, and so uh, offering reparations to, to black folks who come from low-income communities and offering reparations to indigenous folks who come from low-income communities. And really understanding that, again, this, is, this has never been a matter of individual decisions, right? This has always been a matter of systemic decisions. And at no point in time has my ancestral lineage, my family, or I made a decision, a hard choice that was better than the next black person, the next African. You know, we've only been making choices that put us uh, in a position to be proximal to power quicker than the next person. And that that is all. And through that system, we have either been willing to or forced to have our bodies and our labor um, and our people exploited more than the next person. And, that, and that's really all. And so understanding, again, that these are systems at play, not individuals lacking, not individuals who needed to take another path, and making sure that other people understand that message and really narrative correcting when it comes to the way that we see our African people. Yes, so just using my voice in all the rooms that I have access to, whether it be speaking truth to power in the midst of uh, white nonsense happening in the classroom or or in the nonprofit world or, you know, in the streets, standing up to that kind of white supremacy that we see so often just just permeating throughout um, these leftist spaces, these liberal spaces, and of course, these racist spaces. And then also using my voice and my pen to speak against the white supremacy that we see that exists and runs rampant in our own communities, in our black neighborhoods, um, standing up to misogynoir that runs rampant. Um, just always speaking truth to power, being honest, correcting the narrative is really how I use my privileges to stand in the face of European supremacy and the myth of white supremacy. So this week, my privilege is that I have access to the tools to allow me to survive the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, these tools include the clinical skills I acquired in grad school, the over 10 years of clinical practice in order to be able to really interrogate nonprofit spaces and rooms that are rooted in a culture of white supremacy because uh, most of them are white. That longtime proximity to whiteness has sharpened my skills to withstand them and even be heard in some of those rooms in the slightest not given too much credit. <laughs> the relational organizing that has come in those moments with individuals has allowed me some time with the mic as well as with gigs to feed my daughter and participate in the system. 
the skill of hustle I attained after my divorce in 2015 when I had to reroute my entire personal and professional life super quick. So I don't have to only play in the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, but even after several attempts of org facing blows to my voice, which is my power, I'm still standing. I'm still being heard. And I know that's because of the hustle and the help. Because I still work for a nonprofit. Marijuana justice is a nonprofit. I will resist the force of whiteness by passing along these tools so that others may survive this institution. That's my role with this privilege, making sure my siblings can survive. Right now, I don't know other ways to advocate to be heard in order to still be paid without asking people to Venmo us money. We don't have that yet organized, but I know we need to survive. So with this privilege and my, my responsibility, I will provide my intellect, research, resources, and silence to lift spaces outside of the nonprofit industrial complex that are focused on true black liberation. And I'm going to continue to gain more, to redistribute more. And this week I want to acknowledge that my privilege is survival. It's Kalia, and the privilege that I would like to reflect on this week is my location in the nonprofit world. I am currently employed by a nonprofit, which is employment that I was able to get through the skills and experience that I gained during college. While being a first generation black college graduate comes with its own unique challenges and obstacles, ones that I could do an entire episode about. My access to higher education allowed me greater access into nonprofit work as a viable work option. This is because of the sacrifices and the work of my own family, and also through the support of many, many Black people along the way from my own community. I use my location in the nonprofit world to disrupt quote unquote legitimate spaces, challenge power dynamics, and speak truth to power whenever I can. I use my space to create space for other black voices and experiences, especially those of the black youth, to build the world that they would like to see. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Make sure you're subscribed to Race Capital on your favorite app where you listen to podcasts. And we'll catch you next week right here on Richmond's own Race Capital.